0: There's a tendency sometimes to think of detective fiction from the early 20th century as cosy. In fact, in some countries, the phrase cosy mystery even serves as a semi-official subgenre of crime writing, especially in America, where it's defined against the so-called hard-boiled stories of writers like Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. I don't personally subscribe to the belief that there's any such thing as a cosy murder mystery, since even the most bloodless and genteel who-done-it is still about the hunt for a violent killer. But it is certainly true that some writers from the golden age of detective fiction between the two world wars created characters who were a little more conventional than others. Miss Marple is always described as being pink and fluffy, and aside from her interest in crime and human nature, She's keen on knitting, gardening, and getting good bargains on high quality household linens. Whereas Gladys Mitchell's Mrs. Bradley, who first appeared in print in 1929, just two years later than St Mary Mead's most famous resident, was, according to her creator, dry without being shrivelled and bird like without being pretty. Mrs. Bradley's interests are many and varied, but include garish silk dressing gowns and witchcraft was the woman who created this strange reptilian sleuth and then wrote 66 novels featuring her. Well, today we're going to meet the great Gladys. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Tadis Mitchell's long life spanned much of the 20th century, and it's incredible to think about all the change she witnessed. She was born in 1901 in Cowley and brought up in Oxfordshire. After the First World War, in 1919 she went to the University of London and qualified as a teacher, focusing her studies mainly on history. From the age of 21 until her retirement in 1961, She worked as a teacher of history and games in a series of girls' schools with barely a break. And during that time, she also wrote at least a book a year. Mostly they feature Mrs Bradley, but she also produced five historical novels under the pseudonym of Stephen Hockaby, and after her retirement, she debuted a second sleuth in a series of six books published under the name Malcolm Torrey, which are about a crime-solving architect named Timothy Herring. Oh, and she also wrote ten children's books under her own name. I really don't know where she found the time. It's for Mrs Bradley that she's principally remembered, though. She first appeared in the 1929 novel Speedy Death. And she's immediately everything that a golden age sleuth isn't supposed to be. She breaks a lot of the rules of detective fiction in this book, including one pretty major one. And she's rude and sarcastic, as well as being highly perceptive and smart. Mitchell once described Mrs Bradley as having, quote, the maternal anxiety of a boa constrictor which watches its young attempting to devour their first donkey. And I've always loved that summation. She looks like a pterodactyl too, we're frequently told. But she has a gorgeous, mellifluous voice, which charms everyone she speaks to. Mrs Bradley has been married three times, she's a highly educated woman who works as a psychoanalyst and writes books herself, and she's very interested in the weird and supernatural. Miss Marple, she is not. But for fans of Mitchell and her foremost
1: creation, it's that difference that makes her books so appealing. Well, they're so funny. She is so funny. She just cracks me up. She's got a you know, a very caustic wit. And I, I really, really appreciate her wit. And I appreciate Mrs. Bradley's rather um sarcastic view of the world and the fact that nothing surprises her. And I also I happen to I'm a big fan of the Mitfords and There's a kind of writing from early in the 20th century that I know is not to everyone's taste, but it's very much to mine. It's almost it's almost very brittle. For example, in the beginning of Speedy Death, the characters burst into the scene and they start talking nine to the dozen in that particularly arch now archaic style. And I am a sucker for that stuff. I love that.
0: This is Lee Randall a writer based in Scotland and the programmer for Granite Noir, Aberdeen's crime fiction festival. She came across Gladys Mitchell completely by chance when a package of reprinted novels landed on her desk at her newspaper job.
1: So I took the books home and um, they were sort of random sampling. I can't even remember what the first three I read were. And I fell instantly in love with the language and with Mrs. Bradley, who I think is the most, marvelous creation. And with Mitchell herself, I became intrigued. And I'm one of those annoying people who once I am intrigued by something, I start swatting up on it. So I was combing the internet trying to find out about Gladys Mitchell and trying to find out more about the series of books. And that led me down the detection club wormhole and all sorts of things started bubbling up
0: I don't want to take the edge off the shock you get from reading a Mrs. Bradley book for the first time, because you should absolutely try one for yourself. But here's a small taster of what you could expect from Speedy Death, for instance.
1: No, I mean, that book has everything. It's a, it's a locked room, cosy crime, country house mystery with transvestitism and uh, nymphomania and psychological Shadows and Light, and then a rousing courtroom scene at the end. It's got every single thing you could possibly have in a book. And it's so brazen. I I loved it.
0: Mitchell tackled topics in her book that most other Golden Age novelists avoided completely.
1: Oh, God, they're not cozy in the slightest. All sorts of things go on. And she also, the other person I often compare her to is Colette, because sometimes when I'm reading Colette, I have to put the book down and turn to the um, copyright page and say how this book feels so fresh, so modern. It's talking about subject matter that we forget that that sex was not invented in 1963. (laughs) People have always been smart and savvy and perverted and weird and intricate. Always, always, always. And... Gladys Mitchell just puts it all out there on the page.
0: Mitchell's work was popular during her long lifetime. She died in 1983 at the age of 82. And she was an early member of the Detection Club, that association of crime writers who met regularly in London from the 1930s onwards, and collaborated on novels and short stories. Alongside Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers, Mitchell was hailed at this time as one of the big three women detective writers, even though she took quite a different, subversive approach to the form and never attained the global popularity that Christie certainly enjoyed. Mitchell said herself in an interview from 1976 that her books, quote, never made much money and that she never regretted keeping up her teaching career. During a brief break between jobs, She said that she missed the daily self-discipline and irritations of classroom work. After Mitchell's death, her work fell out of favour, and perhaps it had been doing that for a while before as well. Copies of her novels became somewhat difficult to track down, and without new reprints and an active literary estate, her stories weren't finding new readers, although three novels that were published posthumously sold well. For a couple of decades, only the most ardent of fans were still reading and talking about Mrs Bradley. It's astonishing how quickly a writer, even one with such a significant body of work, can completely disappear from the public view. Gladys Mitchell never married and had no children so she lacked future generations to inherit her copyrights and champion her work in the way that Agatha Christie's descendants have done, for instance. Mitchell is sometimes included in that group of lesbian or queer Golden Age writers that also includes Nio Marsh and Josephine Tay, although there isn't any direct confirmation of this from her that I'm aware of. Mitchell's fiction certainly exhibits a more liberal attitude to many aspects of sexuality than almost all of her contemporaries, but that's not definitive evidence of anything, nor is it particularly useful or kind to think of another person's private life as a mystery to be solved. What we do know is that Gladys Mitchell was a fiercely independent, active and self-sufficient woman. Certainly in the first few decades of her professional life, this would have marked her out as extremely unusual. As I've talked about on previous episodes, the years after the First World War certainly saw a great opening up of opportunity, especially for educated middle-class women, But her decision to live alone and split her talents between teaching and writing would still have marked Mitchell out. Given her circumstances and the brilliant strangeness of her fiction, it's not that surprising, therefore, that her work declined in popularity after her death. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use. And I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed but also friends, family members and witnesses so each story feels personal and intimate, as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. Barry Bloomfield was a librarian and a poetry scholar. He died in 2002 and is probably best known today for his bibliography work on two major 20th century poets, W.H. Auden, and Philip Larkin. For our purposes, though, the most important thing about Bloomfield was that he owned a near-complete set of Gladys Mitchell books that he kept in his spare room. Bloomfield first became acquainted with Larkin when he began work on the bibliography of the poet's work, and the two were soon fast friends, with Larkin often staying in that spare room where all the Mrs. Bradley books were kept. Indeed, detective fiction seems to have been a key part of their relationship, Larkin's nickname for Barry was Inspector Bloomfield because of his diligent research on the bibliography. Books that Larkin gave his friend as gifts often had inscriptions that refer to this, with one reading, To Inspector Bloomfield, the start of a fresh investigation. Love, Philip. Larkin matters greatly to the story of Gladys Mitchell's fall and then rise in the esteem of the reading public. He was an ardent fan of her work, and believed that her books had value not just as detective fiction, but as novels in their own right. I personally don't think that this is a good distinction to make – detective fiction is fiction too – but I recognise that Larkin meant this as a huge compliment. You get a sense of the depth of his regard for Mitchell's work, and for detective fiction generally in a review he wrote for the Observer newspaper of her 62nd novel, Here Lies Gloria Mundy. He goes deeply into where this book fits in the canon of Mitchell's whodunits, and even references Miss Murchison, a character who only appears in a significant way in one Sayers novel, Strong Poison. I think Philip Larkin and I might have got on well. I've linked his whole review in the show notes for this episode, because it's well worth reading in full, but the most significant part for now is the conclusion. Larkin says, quote, The best thing about the book is that it will send me back to some of the earlier masterpieces, and I shall read them as novels. They ought to be known as such. Two years after this review was published, Larkin was offered, but declined, the position of poet laureate, the highest honour Britain has for a living poet, and a position that had previously been held by, among others, John Betjeman, Alfred Tennyson and William Wordsworth. For a literary figure of Larkin's stature to so wholeheartedly offer a claim to a detective novelist in her ninth decade, who was often seen by others as a relict of a twee period of crime fiction's past, was incredibly significant. Larkin's nickname for Mitchell The Great Gladys, now adorns a lot of the reprinted versions of her novels. I would hazard a guess that without this blurb, Mitchell's work might have languished unrecognised by major publishers for even longer than it did. As an author myself, I know how much store the publishing industry sets by a good endorsement. And Mitchell got just about the best one there is. Here's Lee Randall again, explaining how she reacted when those first Gladys Mitchell books landed on her desk.
1: And one day out of a puffy envelope tumbled a couple of the vintage reprints and I saw right away that not only were they classy looking packages, but there was a giant puff quote on the top that said, The Great Gladys, Philip Larkin. And I thought, well, I'm not really used to famous poets endorsing crime writers.
0: You see, those three words, The Great Gladys, have extraordinary power. The BBC made a television series based on Gladys Mitchell's books in the late 90s called The Mrs Bradley Mysteries, with Diana Rigg in the starring role, although they changed almost everything about the character. I mean, can you really imagine Rigg, a former Bond girl, ever being reptilian? They only made five episodes, and focused mostly on making the 1920s setting as glamorous as possible. It's a kind of Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, but made 15 years earlier. At the time that the show aired, only one of Mitchell's books was still in print and available to buy as a paperback. There are a few theories as to why Mrs. Bradley didn't endure in the way that Miss Marple did.
1: Part of me wonders if it was the audacity of creating an old, ugly, really smart female protagonist. Mrs. Bradley's ugliness is stressed in every single book. And her age, although it remained fixed through all eternity, (laughs) while those around her grew up and grew older, she's, you know, she's about 57 in the first book. But she's always described very much as a crone. She's like that, that figure from medieval literature, the wise crone who you really want to be on the right side of.
0: Witchcraft and the supernatural play a really big part in the Mrs. Bradley books Appearing in titles like Here Lies Gloria Mundy, The Devil at Saxon Wall, and When Last I Died. And that's just one of the ways in which she regularly breaks the rules of detective fiction. And as you might expect of someone who wrote Getting On for a Hundred Books during her life, not all of Mitchell's novels are that good. She freely acknowledged this herself, telling an interviewer once that, I know I've written some bad books, but I thought they were all right when I wrote them. I can't bear to look at some of them now. She singled out 1939's Printer's Error and 1940's Brazen Tongue as two that she particularly disliked. In 2005, a small US-based publisher of mystery fiction put out a volume of previously uncollected Gladys Mitchell short stories titled Sleuths Academy. It was surprisingly popular, testament both to the quality of Mitchell's own work and to the general revival of interest in classic early 20th century detective fiction that had been building for a while. Several other small-scale reprints followed, and in 2009, Vintage started republishing her books in mass-market paperback form again, in a distinctive tri-band cover style that recalls some of the original Penguins. Now, new readers are spoiled for choice when it comes to Gladys Mitchell novels. You can browse all the spines together in a bookshop and allow yourself to be carried away by the promise of their titles. Should you begin with Nest of Vipers? Or maybe Here Comes a Chopper? Perhaps Hangman's Curfew will do the trick for you. Or Spotted Hemlock, Watson's Choice. Or The Mystery at the Butcher's Shop. But wherever you begin... I can guarantee that your first Gladys Mitchell novel will be completely unlike any other whodunit you've tried before. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It Book Club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Next time on She Done It. The Pale Horse.